Getting deep. It's WKCR FM New York, WKCR HD1, WKCR.org, 89.9 FM. Whatever way you slice it, we are us. It's Jazz Alternatives. The show's heard each weeknight from 6 to 9 p.m. I'm Mitch Goldman. Occasionally on these Monday nights, we do this thing we call Deep Focus, and we invite a special guest into the studio. That guest chooses a topic of Deep focus, and the challenge to me is to find live, unreleased recordings of that artist. And we usually stick the landing. Let's see what happens. I'm very happy to welcome back to the studio, Michael Dorf. Michael? Hey, Mitch. It's been a little minute. I don't think I've been in this studio for over a decade. Um, I think it's actually <laughs> a lot a more than <laughs> I think it's a good couple decades. Yeah. I think we did... We did one of these back in the... Well, we did a show. I don't remember being deep focused. <laughs> no, it was I mean, not deep focused. Because I've never had much focus to begin <laughs> with, so I don't think it would be deep focus. It was not It was not deep focus. <laughs> it was... It was uh, no, it was the old days. It might have even been when... Uh, might have even been when I was doing the show with Ethan Singer. Oh, yeah. Try that one instead. Yeah? Has that got a little more reverb? Oh, oh, oh that's, Is that prettier? That's right, much... Great. Um, prettier. Um, yeah, yes. no, no. It's been a long time. Yeah, I want to say, I mean, yeah, really, it's, yeah, sometime back in the 1900s. Although, how fun was that hanging out at the Newport Jazz Festival? That was good. It was, that it was felt like, good. It felt like, you know, we're jazz guys. <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were road dogs, even. Yeah. But uh, now, Michael, okay, um, almost always my guest is a musician, and people are going, I don't have any Michael Dorff records. Well, you don't, but you do. Because uh, Michael has been one of the people setting the table in this town, among many other towns on various continents around the globe, for uh, nearly as long as I've been listening to music. Michael just closed New York's City Winery. I'm going to ask you about that, because I know there's a new, even better City Winery coming along. And before that, you were the proprietor at... um, what was it was called the Knitting Factory. The Knitting sure. Factory, which was this radio station's unofficial uh, favorite venue, and for many of us who were hungry for things, uh, nipping at the edges of different um, genres of music, as many of the listeners are, it was the only place to be six and a half nights out of seven, and you ran that thing for 
years, about mid 80s. From the beginning of 86, 87, we opened our doors February of 87. And then I left uh, the company when we were on Leonard Street in 2003. So 16 years, you know, I had my bar mitzvah there. Yes. Yeah. 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 Now, I was thinking, I have a funny memory. I don't know. I'm sure you probably remember this too. We have not talked about any of this stuff. No, this, is un- cool. this is pretty unscripted. This the only thing we talked about was Sonny Chirac, but we'll get well, there. Well, I was just about, yeah, you're, you're, yeah. I'm remembering, I was thinking about how many bands you must have heard between 1987 and uh, the last time you walked out of there, and it's got to be way up in the thousands. I mean, oh my goodness, yes. I mean, we had three stages. Um, and I would try and sneak a little bit of of, of everything, and uh, and I lived inside the venue pretty yeah, much yeah, the, literally. in the beginning. I literally had a futon underneath the desk in the office for the first two years. I went to Pineapple Fitness on Canal and 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 Broadway to shower. It was nineteen ninety nine a month, so it was a really good deal for basically. Uh, Keeping clean. I, I used to schwitz once in a while, but I never worked out. You know, but right. they thought I was weird. But I lived inside the club. And, uh, yeah, so I was always there. I was remembering there was some kind of sculpture or assemblage or something that you or someone had made of. of with cassettes? Yeah. <laughs> well, until John Lurie knocked it down one night. Oh, he, yeah, right. he was climbing right. that wall. Um, I mean, we would get anywhere from 25 to 40 cassettes a day during the like during like when the like there was a there was a window there that they just wouldn't they wouldn't stop coming and we tried to listen to everything i mean it was really important um and i did um because i gave the reason i got into the business is i was trying to get a band gigs right so i was on the solicitation side for a while and I knew what it was like to not get the call back or not get the the listen to or the comment, you know? And yeah. and so, you know, I I remember making a point. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna listen to every single tape that someone gives me. And I'd say for four or five years I lived by that. At one point it did get a little bit Meshugana and I do remember actually leaving I mean towards the end in oh three um, and part of the reason I think I, I'm glad I stepped out is I had glad bags filled with unopened mail with cassettes and CDs in it. Right, so I we couldn't even get to to the, we got to the point where in 2003 we couldn't even open it up. No, and, it was, and Michael's gesturing with his hands. He's not making the little sandwich bag glad bag. No, He's making the, the, the big construction the big, yeah. garbage bag. <laughs> yes, they were, glad bag. They were it was and it's. So, I mean, I actually feel bad about that because in thinking – was, it was really about trying to listen to them all. So in the beginning, when we were on Houston Street, we had a wall. When After we took over Estella's restaurant and we put that staircase, we had this – it was about 12 feet by 14 feet tall. It was yeah. kind of the two-story connection spot between the floors. And we just start – we had so many cassettes. We were like, wouldn't it? And they look cool, right? They're these yeah. little different spines and colors. And and we got, you know, Fish's demo tape. You know, Harry <laughs> Connick Jr. gave me a cassette. <laughs> I, and I'm a schmuck and embarrassed because I, you know, listened to it 
And I said to him, it's a little too inside New Orleans for us at the Knitting Factory. I'm sorry, man. What's your name again? <laughs> right. Uh, yep. What a schmuck, right? I mean, <laughs> sorry, Harry. I mean, <laughs> had I known. I think uh, Joe Bronner was representing him, too. I probably. But when he first came to up from New Orleans, you know, yeah. he had yeah, an yeah, apartment yeah. across the street for a little bit. And, and anyways, I, so we just put all the cassettes on the wall until one, you know, night. I forgot exactly the circumstance, but it was... You know, our friend John Lurie, who, else, who, who else would it have knocked the whole thing down. It was incredible. I forgot about that. I, I was a vague recollection. So you, I mean, literally, there had to be tens of thousands of bands that you either heard live or auditioned or whatever. And when I said to you, Michael, who are we going to do this deep focus on? There was one answer you came back with. You know, I, he lived in Ossining, I this believe. Sonny Shirak. Yep, he did. And and I drive past Austin, and I always think about him. And there's never been an opportunity to to uh, honor his his great work and his memory and who he was. And he was, you know, really special guy. Well, I'll tell you something, by the way, not to interrupt, but I'm That's interrupting. Okay. You're, gonna, you're always <laughs> when you do make it to Austin, you must drive down Sunny Chirac Way. There is a street name for As him. As he deserves. Yeah, yeah, at yeah. the very least. Well, you know, when I first met him, I didn't know where Ossining was. And, you know, I, I thought, it, who knew somewhere upstate New York? I mean, I had never adventured north of Houston Street, you know. And so, um, but yeah, he's been on my mind a little bit, just thinking about there's, there's some, there was some, some gentlemen, you know, they were grandfatherly to me, right? I was 23 years old, you know? I mean, you and I had a lot of hair back then, <laughs> we right? Did. <laughs> we had so much hair. And, um, you know, and these guys, you know, probably in 1987, 88, he must have already been 45 or 50. I haven't done that calculation, but he was he was yeah. already a little more, you know, he was certainly mature, but he was, he was, he, he, he had a real gentleman sensibility and he did. instead he of did. looking down on this kid who somehow had this venue and somehow was giving him cash, you know, to play um, and then record, et cetera, but he 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 was always super respectful, and and he didn't need to be, and he he not everybody was not everybody was. <laughs> I mean, like James Blood Ulmer also also very much a gentleman with me, and and. Um, I know, so I've been thinking about these guys and just what 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 great humans they were, and they also happen to be these these magic performers. And uh, I don't know. So when you said let's do the show, and and I was trying to, you know, I was thinking eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine, that you know window, and and knowing you and us, you know, all the time we spent, and and um, I don't know, Sonny just popped out. It just seemed like such a natural. And when you said, yeah, we've never done a Sonny Chirac show, I was like, well, it's perfect. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think um, I I played some with Melvin Gibbs, but um, I don't know if we did a complete show. I think it was uh, – anyway. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was an, an absolutely singular musician. Nobody sounded or to this day sounds like him. And uh, as you said, I mean, he was – he was a, he was um, profoundly warm, uh, thoughtful person, but he was also 
deeply cynical and hilarious. Mm, funny. Real yeah. funny guy. Yep. And it always seemed to come from this kind of rueful sort of uh, uh, sense, his sense about the world, you know? I mean, and, uh, but yeah, the, he, the real Sonny, though, emerged when he was playing. It was, it was always a treat. And so, yeah, you uh, put the, threw the challenge down, and um, I'm stepping up, man. Found some great live recordings of Sonny that almost no one's ever heard. And there might be a super-duper rare, unusual surprise coming soon, Well, too. if we can get the DAT player to work, <laughs> I did bring a DAT tape from from that 1988 uh, period when he must have done six, seven nights that year. Um, yeah, it seemed like he was playing all the time. And yeah. um, he, had, uh, he had an incredible band, Melvin Gibbs, always playing bass. Uh, two drummers, Abe Speller and... Um, Farone Akaloff. It was Yeah, Farone and then um, Lance Carter right, later, right. I think. And um, and Sonny ripping it on guitar. So I'm going to actually pull a little bit of a... Uh, a, um, a spontaneous choice here. And... See if we can get that dat playing. Okay. So I'm going to play this. This is a short set, but a great one. This is from the Wielshofen Jazz Festival, June of 1991. And it is that exactly that band, Melvin Gibbs on bass, Verone Akloff, and Abe Speller on drums. And also in 91, so this is a couple of years later, we're going to get to some of the 1988 stuff in a bit. But uh, Dave Snyder's added on keys, mm. but uh, and it's it's all Sonny ripping on the guitar. So, shall we? I would love to hear it. <laughs> you ready? Yeah, baby. Turn it up if you can. If you're someplace where you can really let it rip, do yourself a favor and uh, bring it up to Chirac volume. Music from Sonny Chirac live from the WKCR archives in Wielshofen, Germany, June 1991. It's Deep Focus. I'm Mitch Goldman. Michael Dorf is my guest. WKCR. Letztes, das letzte von 24 Konzerten. We could hear that, but see, that's just proof. In case you didn't believe me, I didn't see that's because I yeah. pulled it. Yeah. We'll fix this in post-production. Don't worry. We'll take care of this. But I thought this was live. It, <laughs> oh, that's right. All right. Well, see, it is. It's from the, our great thanks to the German broadcast radio folks. Yep. Did a great job with this.
Yes, bitch, ain't it? <laughs> We're having a good time. On keyboards, Mr. Dave Snyder. Lance Carter on drums. The bass player that used to work with us, Mr. Charles Baldwin. And our founder and godfather and all that, Abe Speller.
that is how it rolled out. And uh, that was Sonny Chirac, the great Sonny Chirac. And uh, he just will. He did. does. He just. He just. It's just a. It was power guitar. Yeah. So loud. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. I just loved listening to him. There we go. Uh, I wasn't hearing myself. That was a problem. I always want to hear myself. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said, you know, I think I used the wrong word. I think I used, I said cynicism to describe Sonny Rock. It wasn't cynicism. It was like a, and I'm talking about when he wasn't playing this kind of dark humor. Um, but, I, you know, when he's playing, he's, he's a true believer, man. He's in his thing. And it's real. And it's, it's just so, yeah, unrestrained, unfiltered. It's, it's. And, and I, I, I would, I wonder, I mean, so he was diabetic. Yes. And, and he didn't eat well at all. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I wonder, you know, if he just felt like every day was his last and he played like it and he would, he would go on stage and he didn't. He didn't know if he would be back tomorrow. Yeah. And so he put it out there like there was no tomorrow, right? And, yeah. And he did that every day. And thank goodness he did last for a while. <laughs> yeah. You know, certainly died prematurely. But yeah. Um, he was. He played hard. Younger than we are now. Ooh, God, that's yeah. strange. It <clears throat> is. And he, uh, oh, we just, um, I love the guy. I love the guy. I did get to spend a lot of time with him. Uh, we were on the road together, and uh, when you're on the road with somebody, as you know, stuff comes out. <laughs> Good and bad. I never want to talk to that guy again. Sometimes you're saying about somebody that you sat next to in a van for a week or whatever. Sonny was just the uh, always perspective and uh, finding the humor in things and warmth and and would talk about, if you asked him a question, you got an answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Did you go on that Northwest tour thing with with the, you know, where we had three groups of the Knitting Factory? I remember that? that. No. But I, you, that wasn't the tour you were talking about. Um, no, I did, um, I took Sonny out with Last Exit with mm. Ronald Shannon Jackson, Bill Laswell, yeah. and Peter Broxman. And to, to Europe or U.S.? Um, U.S. Did uh, I think I try to remember? I I must have done some stuff. Must have done some stuff in Europe with them right. too. Right. And we we were t- we only did that once, right? We had one. Uh, well, knitting oh yeah, factory at the knit date. we did them one time. They only played the knitting factory one time. That was February fourth, nineteen eighty-eight, mm. and uh, I could. Tell you what we settled up for that night. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember. It was, it was probably seventy-five percent of the gate where, <laughs> where it came out. Um, no, it was, a, it was a hard guarantee on that one. Yeah, actually, but I tried, I tried to compute it as seventy-five percent of the gate. And then there, I've never saw the place more crowded than it was. Yeah, that night. But um, that kind of became a. I think like kind of a legendary show. People still talk about it. If you Google it, you might see yeah. something about it. that. And the night before, we did Johnny D's in uh, mm. in, Boston. in Boston. Yeah, but um, but yeah, they were they were uh, that band was a piece of work to work with. 
It was kind of a super group. And, um, but yeah, Sonny was always, he was always cool. He was always the same. And it's funny, the first time that I met Sonny was, I'm saying right here in the studios WKCR, although they weren't here. It was another building standing here at the time. But he came by himself. This was 1985. Mm. And he was, he had done a lot by that time. He had, uh, he had a bunch of records out under his own name. He was, you know, he played with Miles Davis. He played with um, Herbie Mann for quite a while. He was known. Yeah. And, um, but he'd been off the scene for years. And he came by himself, just him and his guitar and his amp, and he just sat down, put his amp on the floor, and I think he was sitting on his amp, actually, and playing solo to some, like, tape loops and stuff. And, um, you know, it was the same. And then he, I don't know exactly how far it went, but he had some success kind of in the jam band scene, didn't he? Like, towards the end, I think he was doing a lot of those big festival and events and stuff. I mean, like, he became, he wasn't a superstar in the Madonna sense at that time, but he was known. I think, um, if I recall, like, Thurston Moore and the Sonic Youth guys really used to come and watch him and then, you know, revered, and his name started to get into that rock world, and then that might have connected to, like, the Beck seen a little bit early back I then. thought he was more doing like I don't know if he did the Horde tour or like some of that you know like that, that jam yeah. band stuff really was taken off at that time and I think anyway yeah. doesn't matter but my point is he would have been the same guy playing the same music mm-hmm. either way well I became a super Sonny Chirac fan and I think you did too during a whole series of shows that he did at the Knitting Factory in particular, I remember uh, things coming together there, like, I want to say 87, 88, 89. Yeah. I mean, 88 was, for me, the prime. That was the year I remember Sonny. And then, frankly, Melvin Gibbs, who was there once a week, you At know, least. with all kinds of other groups. Like right. he his, just, his, his groups. And he played with so many different people. Yeah, I had no idea, you know, the incestuousness of the scene. I mean, 87, I, I, w- I was just, op- my eyes were getting open. But 88, we were now really deep in it, and everyone's playing with everybody, and the influence from from one to another, it was a such a fertile time, so, so fertile. And Melvin was one of those guys who just played with everybody, and he could, you know, jam hard with with. With Sonny and all, and and some what felt like songs, and then all of a sudden he's doing all kinds of odd improv, and then he's doing his own material, soft sometimes, and 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 very melodic and just very versatile. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he was anchor of that band. Well, we have a recording of one of those shows from April of 1988, and um, I'm going to guess. I think this was did Sonny did he do like Friday Saturday weekends? Was that he, you know, it was always such an in, interesting um, negotiation on, yeah. on what nights. I mean, it got to a point where it just didn't matter, right? Yeah. Monday, Tuesday would be as crazy as as Friday, Saturday. And then it got to a point where Friday, Saturday was just so overwhelming that 
you know, if you were as popular as Sonny, you'd start to want to move to like Wednesday, Thursday because it just got more comfortable. And I liked it because then I could put something that maybe wasn't as strong a draw right. on the Friday, Saturday, knowing that it would balance out. Because we could only squeeze a hundred and something into the room. That's true. Um, although yeah, people- we had like... 310 for Les Exit or, or the Violin Femmes or some of the John Zorn stuff. Yeah. It was – now, you know, in fairness to people – okay, so if you're just joining us, my name is Mitch Goldman. It's uh, WKCR. The show's called Deep Focus. And Michael Dorff is my guest, and our focus is on the magnificent Sonny Chirac. Michael owned the Knitting Factory at the time that we're talking about, 80s, 90s, and beyond. And – now, there is a place in Brooklyn called the Knitting Factory. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. not the place we're talking about. And I about. have no connection to it. I got out in 03. I feel glad it's around, and my baby and the brand and the name is still around. It's, I'm very proud of it. But it is a completely – this is where I believe you were going there. <laughs> go on. It go is on. a completely different music vibe, and, 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 and it's a different time. You know, Brooklyn is a very vibrant, you know, low place now, actually. Maybe even it's already beyond its time. Most of what we see of Brooklyn, Williamsburg, et cetera, is, is already too fancy compared yeah. to right. what Houston Street was in 1988. You know, it was dirty. It was – the scene was colliding, right? You had the old jazz cats watching and listening and playing with some of the newer avant-garde cats. You had black artists with white artists. You had, you know, a, a, a influence of international and, and, and punk. You know, the, the Bowery was a half a block away. In fact, I bought my first stat machine on the Bowery for 100 bucks, And within a week, the entire uh, venue... Uh, at the time, we got everything stolen, if you remember. Yes, I do. And it was the last time I ever bought anything hot and really learned my karma, you know, yeah. uh, lesson there. You know, you're going to buy something stolen, it's going to come back, you're going to get it stolen. So, um, but that was the introduction of the DAT machine. I really needed to want to have a DAT. But everything was colliding at the same time. Yeah. It was a very fertile, incredible time. Uh, I miss that. You know, I miss oh, yeah. New York. Um, it's hard to to see those scenes anymore. It's 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 very rare. So this was this was Houston Street between Mott and Mulberry, was it? Between Mott and Mulberry, and it was really it was just a little storefront. And in '88, it was uh, just above street level. It was the upstairs. It was an old Avon office. Uh, we paid eighteen hundred dollars a month for a couple thousand square feet of of a loft. Um, within about eight months, Estella's Peruvian restaurant below couldn't take it any longer. The noise that was going down there, and she wasn't doing that good, but um, we were just all over her place. So we ended up taking over her lease very quickly. And then we started making some crazy noise, really loud, the building was shaking, and the family that was living on the second floor moved out. And basically the landlord, this guy Peter Goodman, I haven't seen him in a long time, said, Dorf, you're taking the second floor. And so that became – actually for me it was exciting. It was my first real apartment, and, but it became our office and Sun Ra's lounge and Cecil Taylor's hangout. But, I mean, it was uh, 
right above the club. And so we had basically the three floors. Um, and then Ray Ross was above us, the yeah. great jazz photographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was a pretty crazy building. You know, the, the mob was right around the corner, um, you know, pretty much the first three, four years. That was still very much that, that you know, family business scene. Um, the street was filled with a lot of, of, of people that were living on the street, and the East Village had a lot of, you know, I mean, it was the, the, the movement. There was not, you know, what is it? It's Nolita now. I mean, yeah, I mean no. <laughs> it's none of that. I mean, it, is, it was really gritty and fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. And a little shkivats. A little shkivats. <laughs> Whatever the hell that Yiddish is. I mean, you know, but there was, it was, it was, it was really, um, it was it was it was an artistic dirt. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't seen in yeah. in a while. And you also you had emerging DJ culture. You had like all these other like just subgenres stepping on each other and mixing up, grinding against each other, and it was thrilling. It was really cool yeah. to see you know David Byrne checking things out yeah. and it informing you know someone as big as as him in pop music. But it was a for all of this, uh, and and it became a global brand thanks to your efforts. But I was going to say, despite all that, it was a, still a hole in the wall. It was, it was, oh, <laughs> it, it it was a legit hole in the wall, yeah. and and uh, unsafe. Yeah. Um, you know, from a building code perspective, one of the reasons I wanted to move to Leonard Street, and then our original marketing when we moved to Leonard Street in 1994 was the safest club in New York because I was so proud of the fact that it it actually had sprinklers, it had pull-down boxes, it had the proper exits. You know, the when we took over Estella's, we didn't want to rip out the acoustic ceiling, so what we did is we went to Goodwill and we bought 100 sweaters for a buck and then we cut them in half. A guy named Dan Bodner helped and we basically knit them together and made a ceiling out of sweaters. And then the fire department came in, and we had now sprayed the sweaters with this really toxic, bad fire <laughs> retardant thing that would then drip. <laughs> After we'd spray the ceiling, it would drip for a day down, you know. And like, I sometimes see drips, and there's customers with a glass of beer. And it's like, <laughs> oh my God, what's going on? But the fire department came in and, you know, tried to light it on fire. And a couple of times successfully would get a little bit going. I mean, it, the whole place, you could see the, when there was 150 or more upstairs, the ceiling oh, was yeah. pushed coming down. And it's like, it was really important to move into a place that was going to be safe because I could Should not. Should we talk go- about the bathrooms? Please. <laughs> I, I avoided our bathrooms. That's why I went to Pineapple Fitness around the corner. Good but move. you probably experienced uh, that. Yeah, not good. <laughs> yeah, no, they were bad. Yeah. yeah. If you could imagine the worst New York City restroom, tiny little well, thing. CBGB this was, was still. <laughs> yeah, but CB's was a little bit bigger, and you'd expect it of C. I mean, that was like part of it. You, you know, I, I mean, you got to learn that ours were terrible too, but. They were really atrocious. They were bad. Yeah. They were bad. Yeah. But uh, so this is the environment. And again, small. How wide was it from in the performance? 20 space? feet wide, 22 yeah. feet, you know, uh, with the stairwell, and then um, about 100 feet deep. So it was about 2,000 square feet. And, you know, every couple of weeks, we were knocking out little walls wherever we could um, just 
to find space. I mean, we looked for every ounce of space. Um, and in 94, again, it, it was so exciting to move into a new place. I mean, but before the old knit, when we took over Estelle's, we tried to be a restaurant, actually. So we yes. hit, there was a kitchen. The problem is, is the chef was a junkie for the first month and a half. So it, between not being able to manage, not being able to cook myself, really, and um, it didn't work. So we sold all of the kitchen equipment to one of our neighbors. He tried to open up a restaurant with it somewhere else. And now we had this empty room, which became our first alternative second space. We called it, I believe, the not room. Indeed. And, um, I mean, the craziest stuff went on in there. Um, I, I wish I wish I could remember half of it. Well, just in case, by the way, any of uh, the gang from back then are catching this, especially Bob Appel. Yeah. A little shout out, a little nod, tip of the hat. I just saw Bob, you know, really? and I would say that that tape uh, was probably recorded by Bob. I mean, if it wasn't for Bob, with who was a real musician, I mean, I, I, I always wanted to be in the band. He was in the band that I was, you know, managing and and. And you know, and he was getting girls in high school, and I wasn't right. So I, I that's why I really wanted to be. But thank goodness for Bob, right? He, he, he worked the board, and so we had good sound for a for a small little room. And then as we started getting into recording, Bob, it was really his affinity, and he did some incredible stuff. Early pioneering with a with a DAP machine, and and then the multi track, you know. Digital audio tape, that was pretty wild stuff. And we built our first studio, um, you know, at the old knit on the second floor. And, and uh, you know, he was very much a part of it. So I'm certain that that that, that dad I brought had his handwriting on it. But we're not going to play it. <laughs> because, well, not because of the anything. dad actually is still working. It's your dad machines. It man, is, you know? our dad machines. Yeah. Got to send some money to WKCR and get <laughs> some new dad right. machines. That's right. You're listening to WKCR. I'm Mitch Goldman. My guest, Michael Dorf, and we are in deep focus on the great Sonny Chirac. So we've just set the scene for you down at 47 East Houston Street. Building's still there if you want to go stand in front of it and yeah. gaze. And... Um, but uh, so if you look up to the to the floor above street level, there's big picture window, mm-hmm. and the stage was just right there, right there. So the musicians would have their back to the street. Although mm-hmm. I think you had a big. We had trip. a curtain up. Yeah, we had a yeah. curtain up. And uh, so that is the scene. Abe Speller and Firon Akloff are the drummers. Melvin Gibbs on the bass and the magnificent Sonny Chirac playing guitar. Michael, is there anything else to be said? Well, the door. That you walked in, walked right past the stage, and so I could stand in that doorway, and it was the best seat in the house. And then eventually, when we got Estella's, you went downstairs and then up the back, which was much better than walking basically right in front of the stage to get in. So it was only a short window that we had people come up those steps and right next to the stage. But uh, then it became just an emergency exit. But f- for me to be able to stand right there and almost be on the stage was always one of the most exciting spots to, to see some, some powerful music. It's April 21st, 1988. I can smell it now. This is Sonny Chirac at the Knitting Factory in New York City on WKCR-FM New York, WKCR-HD1.
fret not, listener. There is plenty more of this show. We've got another couple of hours of it. Uh, you're listening to Deep Focus from August 5th, 2019. Michael Dorf, my guest on the topic of the fantastic Sonny Chirac. Chirac, S-H-A-R-R-O-C-K. And uh, you absolutely want to have some of his music in your collection. I wish I could say he was still around doing it, but um, his music still exists. And if you're just finding out about it from this show, by all means, seek and ye shall find some terrific recordings of the fantastic Sonny Chirac. If you are just discovering this podcast, you should subscribe. You can find us probably on your favorite podcasting app. You can always get us on the hosting site, which is mitchgoldman.podbean.com. And if you're digging it, let folks know. It'll be great service to us if you tell a friend who loves music. Or just uh, give us a thumbs up or five stars or whatever. And that's going to help people who have not heard of the show find out about it because it's, you know, they've got those algorithms. It's going to make it pop up for someone who's maybe inclined to like this music but doesn't know about Deep Focus. So that'll be a huge service to us. That's my computer, not yours. Okay, I'm going to see you over at part two of this Sunny Shrock program. It's Deep Focus. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman.